0: with you folks. Um, After a long season of praying and talking things over with my wife Lisa, um, I'm going to step down from being an elder and from being a small group leader in our church. Um, There's no scandal, no crisis, no discouragement, just a refocus. Um, I know I don't look it, but I'm 57. (laughs) Lisa's 55. And back there in the seat with me, I have a six-year-old and a five-year-old and a four-year-old. So we're just doing a little bit of refocus of ministry. Um, you yeah, know, I've been joking with people that uh, we've almost had the kids for about four years. And like the president, I feel like I'm aging very fast. <laughs> so as wonderful and as meaningful as it is, it also is pretty exhausting. And uh, I commute an hour to work and back home from work, and just all the commitments that I have with church right now, it just gets a little bit of exhausting. So I'm just going to refocus and spend time with my three little ones and Lisa, and of course, still be involved with the church here for sure. So, um, just wanted to share with, that with you today. So uh, let's let's join our hearts in prayer this morning, this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, um, we worship You as we have in song, now in words of prayer, and we just want to declare that You are the King. You are the King of the nations, and we are so grateful that You've been the King of our hearts. Lord, You, in Your mercy, have reached down and found us. Lord, you've allowed our eyes to be open and our hearts to be softened. And now, Lord, we're your kids. We're your sons and daughters. Our names never to be erased because they are in the book of life. Lord, you have placed your seal upon us. Lord, you have filled us with your spirit. And Lord, we want to say thank you once again as we come to worship you in church again on this Sunday. Lord, we ask that You would continue to do the work that You've been doing in us. Father, we pray that we would walk into, in a more deep way, this wonderful gift of the being part of the covenant family of God. Lord, that we would walk more deeply into what it means to be a son and daughter of the King Lord, to be a forgiven people. Lord, I pray that we would love your word. Lord, that we would surrender to your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would not allow one area of our life to be hidden from you. You already know it, Lord, but Lord, I pray that you would allow us to surrender to you. And Lord, where area of convictions comes, that we would respond to that conviction. And Lord, we know there's sweet repentance on the other side. Lord, there's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's reconciliation, there's healing. Lord, mind, body, and spirit, You're after all of us, Lord. And we want to give it to You, Lord. Allow us to move into greater depths of our relationship with You. Lord, not for ourselves, but for this church body, for the community of believers that we're surrounded with, of like-minded believers. Bible-believing, Biblical Christians in this region. Lord, we want to be the people You've called us to be. We don't want to shrink back. We don't want to step forward in unnecessary boldness, God. We want to have that, that perfect mix, Lord, of boldness and humility, not shrinking back from being the people You've asked us to be, Lord. Lord, we can't do it on our own. And we know You're not done with us. We know that life in You keeps getting better. Even in the midst of trials and temptations and failures and confusion and misunderstanding, You keep getting better because You did the work on the cross. It is finished. It is done. And we live in the good that we can trust Your blood just like we, sh- we just sang about. Lord, so guide us and lead us. Fill us with Your Spirit. Give us Your wisdom, Lord. We thank You, Lord. Thank You that You hold us and You're for us. Move us to where You want us to go, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Well, I want to say a few words before we transition to looking at the Word of God. And um, I just want to say it's really good to have a brother like Mike here in this church family, isn't it? He has served faithfully in many ways for about 20 years in this church family. And has served faithfully uh, as an elder in this church family for years. He has served uh, with love for you all as christ's people he has served with courage uh, and with a dogged devotion to the truth and to representing the truth in god's ways he has served with a humility and a dependence on god that really is honorable so I just want to say, as one of the people in this church family who has benefited from Christ's care, and as one of the people, as a part of our team of elders who has kind of had an upfront, uh, a front row seat to watch Mike's leadership gifts in action month after month and year after year, I just want to say on behalf of this church family, Mike, we honor you and we love you and we thank God for you. So thank you for serving us sincerely. I also want to say um, it's good not only to have a brother like Mike in this church family, whatever role he's in, uh, it's good to have him here. It's also good to know, as the book of Peter tells us, uh, I love this little phrase in, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, when Peter says to the church family, you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Which could be translated, you have returned to the pastor and the bishop of your souls. And that's not referring to any one of the kind of human uh, elders on the team. It's not referring to a senior pastor. It's referring to Jesus. And there's something good uh, in any kind of moment of transition of just knowing that we have come not to a perfect team of elders in any church, uh, in any one congregation, we have come to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls who loved us and gave himself for us and ever lives to intercede for us and whose reign of peace will continue to increase forevermore. And it's good to know uh, that we belong to him, Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And thirdly, I want to add, um, we're going to continue reviewing... Um, Nominations for future elders and so if this sparks something in your mind to say well if mike's not on the team Then i'd like to nominate somebody Please do participate in that if you would uh, before tuesday because we will review those nominations uh, As elders at that time and begin moving forward we actually had begun that discussion uh, as elders by adding more elders uh, shortly before mike said you know what this would probably be a good time uh, to say i think uh, i think to honor the lord uh with uh, the limitation of time that we all experience uh, i'm going to need to step off the team and so we honor him we thank god that he we thank jesus that he is our chief shepherd and we look forward to seeing how god is going to continue to lead mike we thank god for you i want to say that sincerely i love you brother I thank God for you, and I'm so glad you're not going anywhere. All right, well, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Proverbs. We are going back to Proverbs for a little bit longer. We'll be looking, we've been in the book of Proverbs uh, since before Christmas, and um, we will continue to remain looking at the book of Proverbs until uh, about Mother's Day, maybe a week or two past Mother's Day. And what we're doing is we're kind of making our way through the book of Proverbs. We're kind of moving from, moving through these later chapters. And we're obviously, if you know much about the book of Proverbs, it would... Almost be impossible to preach every single line of this book, but what we're doing as we kind of move our way through this book is we're pausing on a couple of Proverbs as a time as we make our way through. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 25 as we're making our way through the book of Proverbs. Uh, what we are learning is we are learning wisdom. The book of Proverbs is given to teach us wisdom, which is skill for living well in God's world. And we have this crazy idea that maybe um, in this cultural moment that we're living in, some of us could use some wisdom. Some of us could use some skill for living well in God's world. And so we are slowing down and paying attention to the wisdom that God has revealed to us In his word. Today, we're going to pay attention to the theme of wisdom for enemies. And I know that most of us want to think that we don't have any enemies. First of all, we want to think that we don't have any enemies because we live in the American culture that loves niceness. And so we all want to think, I'm a nice person and nice people don't have enemies, therefore I don't have enemies. The logic holds. But the problem is that even if we are nice people living in a nice culture filled with other nice people, we may still have enemies or maybe for particular Christian reasons. Uh, If you've grown up in the church, you have heard so many times that Jesus taught us to love your enemies. And we think that the way to apply that verse is to simply pretend that we don't have any enemies. But Jesus did not command us Thou shalt pretend thou have thou hast no enemies. Jesus commanded us, love your enemies. His commands are much more real world than the pretend kind of spirituality that some of us have grown up around. And so whether it's kind of this American dream of niceness, or whether it's Jesus' teaching about loving our enemies as ourselves, some of us have come up with these ways of pretending that nobody has ever acted like an enemy toward us. We're pretending that we don't feel feelings of animosity toward other people, or pretending that our world doesn't expect us to be enemies with other people because of the way that the world views things. But let's be honest, we live in an us-versus-them world. We live in an us-versus-them world. And in this us versus them world, this sense of rivalry toward other people can begin to grow up at a very young age. Sibling rivalries are a real thing, even from young ages, right? In fact, this morning I was in my kitchen making my coffee, which I do every single day religiously. Don't don't hate me for it, but I was making my coffee and one of my kids asked what the sermon would be about today. And I answered, we're going to talk about kindness toward enemies. And this child of mine got wide eyes and raised eyebrows. And this child of mine said, I feel like that one's for me. <laughs> I appreciated the honesty of one child's. Which many of us would do well to emulate, right? In their rivalries and in their small fights, even from a young age, kids can feel like others, even in their family, even loved ones, even siblings, can feel like enemies. And it's not just siblings, right? Sometimes parents feel like their kids have been acting like enemies for them. Some of us have experienced workplace rivalry. Right, Someone who constantly seems to ignore or undermine your contributions, your skills, your gifts, your contributions to the team. In our society, some of us grew up talking about gender in such a way that men might feel like we are at odds with women. Y'all are from Venus. We're from Mars. We're different. We're other. We're at odds with one another. Students sometimes feel at odds with teachers and sometimes vice versa. Some of us feel at odds with people who have just a different personality type than us. Maybe, for example, if we just take one kind of personality difference, there are some people who are a little more intense than others. You know who we're talking about if you're one of them. Some people are a little more intense than others and... Those who are a little less intense than those who are more intense can feel that intensity as an ongoing anger. Or those of you who are more intense might look at those who are a little less intense and think that their lack of intensity, that that more chill person might just appear to be apathetic to you, or might appear to be cold and uncaring. These might just be simple personality differences that lead us to feel like because of these differences, we're not just different, we're enemies. We're at odds with one another. We're not compatible. We're not getting along with each other, right? More seriously, maybe there is somebody who wronged you years ago in a business deal. Never came back and made things right. Or maybe you have experienced the pain of really being betrayed by a friend. Maybe years later, that betrayal from a friend still, still digs deep. It still conjures up painful memories. Maybe there's a family member who won't even give you a chance to try to explain yourself. And then there's this issue In our us versus them world of neighbors who fly different flags. On my block, we've got the house with a Black Lives Matter flag flying proudly in the front yard along with rainbow banners. And I noticed while I was out walking the other day, we also have a house that has chosen to put back up their Trump flag And some of us, as we're out walking around in the spring weather, will feel more comfortable talking with people who are flying one flag or another flag. Why? Because we live in this polarized society. We live in this cultural moment when political divides feel very, very deep, when small cracks have perhaps grown into much wider canyons and so This is real life in a polarized neighborhood. We see one flag or another flag and we immediately think, they're against me. The news channels that you choose may stoke fears that they are out to get you. And as a result, political conservatives will often feel misunderstood and will feel muted and will feel constantly attacked by progressives and vice versa. However true it is, this story is amplified by media. And something as simple as masks, right, can evoke not only a reasonable conversation between two friends, but a sense of even rivalry and enmity. Our media wants to turn these things into fodder, for culture wars, right? And then there's the very very sensitive issue of Bears fans and Packers fans who are both a part of the same church family. God help us, right? Whether we think of real enemies who actually want to harm us, or whether we simply feel a sense of unhealthy rivalry with someone close to us, or whether it's this issue of this world telling us that certain people are supposed to be our enemies. Whatever the case may be, we live in an us versus them world. And however nice we might think ourselves to be, And however devoted we are to the teaching of Jesus that we should love our enemies, the fact is that in order to love our enemies, we're going to need some wisdom for enemies. Wisdom which we find right here in this slice of God's Word in Proverbs chapter 21. If you would look with me at verses 21, 25, chapter 25. Look with me if you would at verses 21 and 22. God's word teaches us this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he is thirsty, give him water. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In this passage, we have both a direction of wisdom and a reason for wisdom. What we're called to do and why we're called to do it. Let's pay attention, first of all, to the direction that we receive from wisdom. The direction is this. The direction of of God's wisdom calls us to show hospitable kindness... When the world expects hostile clashes. The direction of wisdom calls us to show hospitable kindness. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him or her something to drink. The direction of God's word is to show hospitality when the world expects hostility. Now our interpretation of this proverb could backfire in a variety of ways, and I want to kind of upfront mention a few of the ways that our interpretation of this proverb could backfire. It could backfire, for one thing, if it creates suspicion of other people in our church family. Here's what I mean by that. Just yesterday, when I was hungry, my friends Peter John and Liz Hunt gave me a loaf of bread. They literally did. And Peter John is a deacon, which means he knows what we're preaching on this week, which means he knows what the passage is. And so, If Peter John knows that you're supposed to give bread to your enemy when he's hungry, do you see the problem this can create? I receive the loaf of bread with gratefulness because it's tasty and it's stomach satisfying. But our interpretation of this passage backfires if it creates a culture of suspicion, right? If it leads us to think, is Peter John really saying that I'm his enemy? By giving me a little. So here's what I want to say. If somebody invites you to have a meal with them this week, please don't interpret it as them saying, You're my enemy and I'm trying my best, okay? Our interpretation of this passage will backfire if it creates suspicion of others. Our interpretation of this proverb could backfire if we use it to manipulate others. If we use it as a way of saying, Ah, God's word says, I should give something nicely to other people and since I want to get something from them I'm going to give something to them that's manipulation not godliness. Our interpretation of this proverb could backfire if we use it to avoid accountability in situations of harm. If for example somebody does serious harm and and that person and the person who is harmed is thinking about contacting and involving the authorities for the sake of safety in an appropriate way. And we say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, God's Word says you should feed that person who hurts you, not call the authorities on that person who hurts you. And yet we have the example of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, right? Under threat of being beaten, what does he do? He says, I have rights as a citizen and I'm appealing to the civil authorities to come and protect me in the ways that they should come and protect me in this situation. So our interpretation of this proverb would backfire if we use a teaching like this as a way of avoiding accountability in situations of harm. Our, our interpretation of this proverb would backfire also if we expect it to simply work every single time. And I put the word work in scare quotes because we've seen this over and over in the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs are observational. They're part of the truth, not necessarily all of the truth, which is why sometimes the Proverbs will even disagree with each other, right? They're showing us one perspective, one observation, one slice of what life looks like under the sun, right? And so perhaps in your workplace scenario, you have someone who feels like a rival and you bring them something to drink, a cup of coffee on Tuesday morning and they still don't treat you any more kindly and you think to yourself, maybe I didn't buy the right kind of coffee, maybe I didn't provide enough food, maybe I need to start providing food and beverages more often. We can't expect this proverb to work every single time in the simplest of ways. Furthermore, our interpretation of this proverb will backfire if we use it to avoid hard conversations. The teaching of this proverb is that if your enemy is hungry, you should give him some bread. That doesn't mean that if your enemy is hungry, you should never talk about hard topics with them. Do you see? And so there are two dangers that we could face. One danger might be a danger of kind of assuming that the way of following Christ is nothing but defending the truth of Christianity. And so we think that all I do to represent Jesus in this world is just teach what Jesus taught. And there's a danger... In that of representing the truth of Christianity without representing it Christianly. Do you see what I'm saying? And this proverb should not be used as an excuse to not represent the truth of Christianity. We don't take this proverb and say, see, all we ever do is bake bread for people as Christians. We never have those hard conversations. All we ever do is give a cup of cold water. We never initiate the conversation about that thing that's created a sense of divide between me and my friend or me and my sister or me and my brother. We never initiate that conversation. That would backfire, right? So, I hope I haven't spent too much time on this, but I want to share some of those qualifications to say there are ways that our interpretation of this proverb could backfire, but... With all of those ways that our interpretation of this proverb could backfire, I want to suggest that this is a proverb that we need and need desperately today. And I think that we need and need this proverb desperately because I think many of us as Christians don't walk this out particularly well. The reason I say that is because I have social media (laughs) and I've seen how Christians around the country interact with those that they perceive to be their enemies in the culture wars that we're in or how they interact with those who they perceive to be their enemies within the church itself. I say that because I've been a pastor long enough to have seen how people treat others that they call their brother or sister in their own congregation. I've been a dad and a husband and a friend long enough to know that even people who have been walking with Christ for some years can be awfully good at stabbing others in the back. And what I want to suggest is that we desperately need this wisdom from God's Word which teaches us a countercultural way of interacting with those that the world would identify as our enemies a countercultural way of interacting with those the world would identify as our enemies which involves not treating our enemies with hostility but instead treating our enemies with hospitality with a hospitable kind of kindness and care and graciousness and love which runs against all our expectations in this world, And notice how our passage teaches us to get there. One of the ways that this proverb teaches us to love our enemies is it teaches us to humanize our enemies. When we get in an us versus them mindset, whether it's me versus my sibling in the family, or whether it's us on our team versus them on their team in the workplace, or whether it's some other sense of rivalry, when we get into an us versus them mindset, one of the things we tend to do is we tend to demonize those on the other side. This passage teaches us to humanize those who might be identified as enemies. It teaches us to humanize them by realizing that we have so much in common with them. Those enemies of ours get hungry, just like you. It teaches us to slow down in a way and recognize that that person is made in the image of God just like you are. That that person has sinned and made mistakes just like you have. That that person is in need of redemption just like you are. That that person has real emotions just like you do. That that person has opinions, some right and some wrong, just like you do. That that other person gets tired and hungry and when their blood sugar gets low, they might get cranky just like you might. That that person gets thirsty and has basic needs just like you do. It teaches us to look at our enemies Not as enemies alone, but as humans who just like us have weaknesses and needs. And beyond simply viewing others differently, it invites us to treat others differently. Whereas the world sees the weakness of an enemy as a chance to crush the enemy with violence... The Christian sees the weakness of an enemy as an opportunity to cherish them and bless them with kindness. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For little kids, that can look as simple as if your rival is fighting over toys, try sharing that toy with her or with him. In various walks of life, it might look like if your enemy has needs, perhaps you could make some time to spend with them instead of coldly avoiding them. If your enemy is low, perhaps you could write a note of encouragement instead of simply adding your own criticisms. If your enemy is at a low point, perhaps you could take a break from criticizing their weaknesses and use that break to cheer for their strengths. What is wisdom for enemies? The direction of this passage is this. The direction of this passage calls us to show hospitality when the world expects hostility. Maybe I can ask you to pause for just a moment and consider... Who would the world expect you to show hostility toward this week even? And how could you you express a kind of hospitable kindness instead of adding more hostile clashes? Show hospitable love when the world expects hostile clashes. That's what this passage calls us to, but why? Let's pay attention to the reasoning of this passage to the reasoning that we read here in verse 2. What is the reason for hospitable kindness? Verse 22 gives us this fascinating picture. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that's a fascinating picture, isn't it? And I want to admit right up front that I don't know exactly what it means to heap burning coals on your enemy's head. In fact, uh, I read what Christians have written about this for hundreds of years this week. Not everything every Christian has written, right? But I went back many years and I found that across the centuries, Christians have read this teaching in Proverbs Chapter 25, which is echoed in Romans 12, and Christians have kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, we're not exactly sure what it means to heap burning coals on a neighbor's head. And there are a few different suggestions about what it might refer to. The most common suggestion is that it might refer to some kind of ancient Near Eastern practice related to repentance. Repentance. For example, we do know that in the Egyptian culture, in the same time that this proverb was written, there was kind of a practice of, you know, if two people got in a conflict with one another, and if you realized that you were wrong, or if I realized that I was wrong in this conflict, in their honor-shame culture, they wouldn't just say, okay, I'm wrong, you're right, let's move on. In their honor shame culture, they would look for a way to signify that I'm wrong, you're right, let's make things right. And one of the ways that in at least some ancient Near Eastern cultures of that day that they would signify I'm wrong, you're right, I'm repenting and going in a different direction is they might, it seems they had this kind of tradition of getting a pot of burning coals. And taking kind of that pot of burning coals with family or friends gathered around or perhaps out in the street so that other neighbors can see and taking that pot of burning coals and setting it on their own head as a kind of way of representing, I deserve any judgment that would fall on me at this point and I get it. And they might walk down the street with that pot of burning coals on their head as a way of signifying I get it, I'm wrong, you're right, I repent and I'm going in a different direction. Probably there's something like that in the background of this idea of heaping burning coals on your neighbor's head. Whether it's that particular practice or some other practice, most Christians across the years have come to Proverbs 25 or where Proverbs 25 is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 12. And they've said, it seems that heaping burning coals on the enemy's head has something to do with leading an enemy toward repentance. And the teaching of this passage in that case is that here's the reason why instead of just adding hostile clashes with your enemy. And by the way, what happens when we have a hostile clash? More often than not, it just hardens our heart more. Is that instead of a hostile clash, which tends to have the effect of hardening a heart, it is better to interact with those the world would identify as enemies with a kind of hospitable kindness that instead of hardening their heart, might instead soften their heart and lead them in the direction of repentance. And I want to suggest to you that in a wonderful way, this tends to have profound effects in other people's lives. Now, go back to what we said a minute ago. Let's not let this be used in some manipulative way. But let's recognize the beauty and the wisdom of God's Word which teaches us this kind of direction. And let me share a few examples with you of how this actually has worked in real time. One of the things that we can see in real world observation, if you will, is that when we replace hostile conflicts with hospitable kindness, it really can change a relationship. It can have the effect of changing a relationship. Let me tell you a story about Biola University President Dr. Barry Corey. A few years ago, in 2016, a California uh, assemb- a California state uh, assembly person proposed stripping colleges of all of their access to state funding unless they lined up with a particular stance on sexuality. Schools like Biola University in Los Angeles would be unable to teach that Marriage is between a man and a woman, biblically speaking, or else they would be forced to forfeit their finances. So Biola University President Barry Corey got very interested in this situation. In the end, that bill that was moving through California legislature didn't pass, but Dr. Barry Corey didn't stop there when the bill didn't pass he he took the time to seek out one of the pioneers behind that bill he contacted assembly person evan Lowe, who is an state assembly member and also the chair of the lgbtq caucus in the state assembly in california and he contacted him and he contacted this assembly person and he asked the question he said, How can we as a Christian university do things better from your perspective? It's a humble question for a Christian to ask in that scenario, right? He told him clearly, We're not going to change our core stance as a university on this issue, but we've probably made some mistakes along the way. How can we do it better? Dr. Corey actually visited Assembly person Lowe up in the up in his own office in the state capitol in Sacramento. And then Assembly Member Lowe came to visit Biola University to spend time with Dr. Corey, to meet faculty, to meet with students, to see the campus himself. They ate dinner together and they discussed some of the issues that that divided the two of them. And this proactive Act of hospitality instead of just hostility proved to be disarming in this relationship. Gradually, each of them found they were lowering their defenses. And then in an article that they co-authored and published in the Washington Post, they said together, quote, It's amazing how quickly biases can be overcome when real relationships are prioritized when you realize the person you once thought an adversary in many ways is like you, with a story and with passions and with fears and with a hope that we can make the world a better place. This illustration of the relationship between Dr. Corey and Assemblymember Lowe illustrates the fact that when we replace hostile conflicts with hospitable kindness, it really can change a relationship. But not only that, I want to go further and tell you that when we replace hostile conflicts with hospitable kindness, even further than that, it can change a life. Don't just take my word for it. Let me read to you a testimony from... Rosaria Champagne-Butterfield, as she explains how she came to faith in Jesus Christ. She writes her story like this. Going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. As an out-lesbian feminist... A leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. And I kind of put that in scare quotes because I'm not sure that she was an enemy to these people she got in contact with, right? But in the eyes of the world, they're expected to be enemies, Someone who supports LGBTQ rights at a secular university and evangelical Christians, whether or not we're actually enemies, we're expected to be, right? So she said, I didn't want to become friends with enemies. Christians seemed to me like small-minded, uncharitable, a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat. Heaven forbid. (laughs) They believed in corporal punishment. They violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch. They denied a woman's right to choose and believed the whole world should fall under totalitarian obedience to the Bible. An ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia, she thought. They believed in and manufactured superstitions about sin, which I believed was, as Freud declared, simply a cultural phobia deeply held by dupes whose thinking was manipulated by a universal obsession Obsessional neurosis, but mostly Christians just scared me to death, she says. Our worldviews and the moral lens we use to make sense of things were unbridgeable, she recalls. But listen to what she describes about what came next when she went to have a meal with an evangelical pastor in her town. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who He says He is and eventually came face to face with Jesus on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. She reflects further like this. In post-Christian communities, your words can be only as strong as your relationships. And therefore, I love the way she puts this, your best weapon, Christian, your best weapon is an open door a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex for the tears that spill. Based on her own testimony, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield is reminding us that when we replace hostility toward those the world sees as our enemies, when we replace that hostility with hospitable kindness, it can change a life. More than that, when we replace hostile conflicts with hospitable kindness, it can even change the world, I would go on to say. In fact, isn't this the testimony of countless millions of people across the centuries and around the globe that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son Romans chapter 5 Isn't this our testimony and the testimony of countless millions of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that quote God's kindness led us to repentance His kindness led us to repentance And that's why the apostle John summarizes our ethic like this, 1 John four nineteen, We love because He first loved us. See, there are some things that are hard to represent until you've tasted them, but are hard not to go and represent once you've tasted them. There are some things that are hard to represent until you've tasted it, but hard not to represent once you've tasted it. Baklava is one example I've mentioned before, right? It's hard to go and explain to people why they would want that curious-looking Middle Eastern dessert called baklava unless you've tasted for yourself. But once you've tasted those crispy phyllo layers with nuts and with oozing honey in between, once you've tasted it, it's hard not to tell others, you've got to try a bite. And the same is true with our message of reconciliation. It's hard to go and represent a message of reconciliation if you've not really tasted it yourself. But once it begins to sink in deep, That while we were still His enemies, God in love sent His Son to reconcile us to Himself. It's hard to not go and represent that kind of hospitable kindness. That kind of love. That kind of mercy and charity and love and kindness toward others. What does this passage call us to do? It calls us to Replace hostile conflicts with hospitable kindness. And why does it call us to it? In part because of the burning coals of repentance, and very briefly, also in part because of His rewards. You see that in verse 22. Here's why we should treat others who the world would expect to be our enemies with hospitable kindness. Not only because in so doing we can heap burning coals on their head and perhaps lead them to repentance, but also even if they won't be led to repentance. Even if their hearts refuse to be softened. Even if there is no visible fruit as a result of your repeated kindness and generosity over and over and over again. The Lord gives us this sweet incentive of His rewards for us. Jesus Himself perhaps was thinking of this very proverb when He promised us Matthew chapter 10, verse 42 Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water in My name because He is a disciple truly I say to you He will by no means lose His reward. And so Christians, I know that at times we may grow weary or we may be tempted to grow weary in doing good and in showing kindness. But if we give up showing kindness simply because we see no visible results, we call Jesus a liar. Our incentive is not simply because other people's hearts might be changed. It's because we're devoted to following Him It's because we're devoted to following the ways of the one who loved us while we were still enemies. And it's because we believe his promise that we will by no means lose our reward. And so, brothers and sisters, since he first loved us while we were still enemies, And since He promises to lavishly reward those who follow Him in the way of redemptive kindness, let's go and let's spread not hostile conflicts, but hospitable kindness. Let's go and spread His love and let's go and spread His mercy and grace far and wide. Let's go and spread this kind of disarming hospitality. Wherever the world expects hostility. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. And as we consider this ethical call from the book of Proverbs to live this kind of countercultural lifestyle, a lifestyle not of joining in hostile conflicts, but in blessing others with hospitable kindness, We remember not primarily what we are called to do, but we remember primarily who He is and what He has done for us in loving us even while we were still enemies and sending His Son to give Himself for us. If you joined us today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we'll ask you to kind of hang out where you are for the next couple of minutes we'll wrap up soon with a last song the reason we ask you to hang out where you are is because taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of ongoing faith in Jesus but if that's you and you arrive today not yet a follower of Jesus we would love to invite you even right now to turn to Jesus to trust in him and his sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of your sins And to even today begin the journey of following Him as your Lord. We'd love to invite you even now to turn to Jesus and join us in rejoicing in His great love for us. And for those who live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. I want to invite you to come and take the bread and the cup in glad-hearted remembrance of His great love. In glad-hearted remembrance of this. He loved us first. You may come.